0: So let's just get started this morning. I think it's important this morning to address the events of this week before we get into today's message briefly. On Friday, I received a phone call from the RCMP informing me that they had been made aware that we were planning to meet for church services this Sunday, today, this morning. I confirmed to the officer that this was true. We had a lengthy discussion around the implications this could have for myself and for my church for the weeks to come. This, of course, included fines, litigation, and jail time. I'm afraid that I may have produced more heat than light during our conversation, but I reached out to the officer the next day and apologized for anything that I may have said. Uh, And so we had a good discussion afterwards, and uh, a more personal discussion afterwards, uh, after we had cleared the air and just talked about life for a while. So uh, to some degree, for the most part at least, uh, I think we cleared the air. Um, After I spoke with the officer on Friday, I sought legal advice from the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms and was in contact with a fellow named Marty there. Uh, I would ask everyone that's listening to consider praying for Marty and the JCCF and consider donating to their organization. They are truly on the front lines of this battle. They will be spending their time, much of their time, uh, down in Vancouver and then over to the Edmonton area um, and and uh, working with these churches that have been uh, shut down and pastors that have been uh, at least one pastor that has been arrested. So please, please, please pray for uh, Pastor James Coates and his wife. And um, also, um, for my understanding, they are currently involved in some capacity in advising or represented, representing now about 50 churches in B.C. alone that have been um, adversely affected by Bonnie Henry and her uh, indefinite health order. The three most important churches to remember in prayer at this time, I think, are the Riverside Calvary Chapel in Langley, Emmanuel Covenant Reformed Church in Abbotsford, and Free Reformed Church of Chilliwack, who will all be um, in court this Wednesday morning. Uh, they are scheduled to appear in court challenging Bonnie Henry's order um, in March between the 1st and the 3rd. So that gives you uh, uh, some time to really begin to pray. And Marty, the lawyer that I spoke to on the phone, is a member of the legal team for these hearings, and he has been um, sending me emails um, as to how to conduct ourselves through these times. And it is. Um, through some of the advice that he gave me uh, that, that I gave to the board that we decided that this morning was not a good time to meet. Anyway, back to Nichaco Christian Fellowship. Firstly, I want to thank everyone that has reached out to me and my family and my church family during this stressful time. If we would have been faced with a mere fine of $2,300, I think... I had at least a dozen offers to pay for that fine for me and the number of others praying was actually in the thousands. On Friday evening, the home phone and our cell phones were ringing constantly. As is natural, a small percentage of the messages we received were disparaging and critical of our position. None of that changed what our church was facing though. A member of the board reached out to those of us that were available, and we had a meeting Saturday morning to discuss what we were going to do moving forward into the weeks and possibly months and even years to come, if court cases were in our future. It was at this point that the board decided that we were not prepared from a legal standpoint to allow our church to become the center of a political statement. We were unprepared legally to take on the B.C. government, and so we backed down. We decided to cancel our planned in-person services and did so unanimously but with a profound sense of loss this is when we really began to take some heat from christians and non-christians alike many many christians expressed their disappointment in me personally for my cowardice and backing away from the fight i understand that nothing anybody is going to say will be worse than my own inner battles in this matter. Nothing anybody can say will be more powerful than my own questioning of my own motives for backing down. Nothing anybody can say will ring more powerfully in my ears than my Lord Jesus Christ saying to me at this time, Poorly done, weak and faithless servant. The rebuke of Christ makes the rebuke of those of you around me seem like praise. So all I can say to that is that I hope this inspires some of you to do better than I did. Have you made a stand that caused the RCMP to come knocking on your door for your faithfulness to Christ? Or are you hiding as well? Have you written letters to your mayor, municipal government representatives, MPs, MLAs, Premier, Prime Minister, health officials, pastors, priests, and others, so that your voice is heard? Will you be going down to Vancouver on wednesday or in march or both to stand with your brothers and sisters in the lord and face fines and jail time some of you have and will come henry or high water and you are better people than i praise the lord for me this morning at least my job is to teach for those of you joining us possibly for the first time we have been going step by step through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Last week, we looked at Nehemiah chapter nine, which was made up mostly of a prayer of blessing offered to the Lord by the Levites before the assembly of Jews after the Feast of Booths. We spent about half our time looking at the preparation for this assembly. And then we touched on just a few verses in the prayer that jumped out at me during the week. I hope you took the opportunity this week To look at this wonderful prayer in Nehemiah chapter 9, as it is not only a perfect summary of God's redemptive history, particularly through the Israelites, but it is also packed full of beautiful descriptions of God's character and actions in his salvific plan. It describes God's name as glorious, exalted above all blessing and praise. It tells us that God is righteous ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abundant in kindness. It exclaims that God is merciful, sustaining, good and patient. And it continues, our God is great, mighty, awesome and just. If we would have done nothing last week other than read this prayer of blessing, we would have been blessed indeed with the heavenly manna that comes down from heaven. So today we are going to look at Nehemiah chapter 10. We are going to read, um, I'll I'll jump around a little bit at the beginning because um, there's a lot of lists of names. And so um, if you can just follow along to the best of your ability, and I'll try and and get the, the skeleton or the roots of the matter here. Let's skip over all of the names. So um, the Israelites have just made a covenant with God. And uh, let's begin in chapter 10, verse 1. On the seals are the names of Nehemiah, the governor, the son of Hakaliah. And then it goes on to name uh, a whole bunch of the priests. And you can see that in verse 8. It says, these are the priests. Then in verse 9, it says, and the Levites and it lists a bunch of the Levites that also had their names sealed to the document, and their brothers, it says in verse 10. Oh, and then down to verse 28, and let's just read from there, basically, to the end of the chapter. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, and their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and to do all the commandments of the Lord our God, and his rules and his statutes. We will not give our daughters to the people of the land, or take their daughters for our sons. And if the people of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, We will not buy from them on the Sabbath day or on a holy day, and we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, the regular grain offering, the burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things and the sin offerings To make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering, to bring it into the house of our God according to our Father's houses, at times appointed year by year, to burn on the altar of the Lord our God, as it is written in the law. We obligate ourselves, to bring the firstfruits of our ground and the firstfruits of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. Also, to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil, to the priests to the chambers of the house of our God and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground. For it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor. And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful that we can gather before you this morning. We are grateful for your word especially. Help us, at least for these next few minutes, To set aside everything that's going on around us and to focus on what you are doing and the work that you are doing. It is uh, easy to get distracted during these days. Uh, We have distractions all over and we just ask by your grace, you would give us minds to focus on your word for this time. And it's in Jesus name we pray. Amen. So as we began the passage, it lists those who signed the covenant. You'll notice that I titled my message, if you uh, have looked at the outline, I've titled it Israel's Covenant with God. Now, be careful, I did not title it God's Covenant with Israel. That took place long, long before this. This is Israel's Covenant with God. And it goes on to list the people. So Nehemiah and the priests signed the contract, and we see that in verses 1 through 8. At the end of Nehemiah chapter 9, the people had come to a place of decision. Through exposure to the law by the hand of Moses, the Jewish people recognized their complete failure in being faithful to the covenant God had made with them at Mount Sinai. And now, collectively, they were going to act by writing up a covenant that they desired to keep before God. Bible scholars have long debated whether or not this was a good idea, but that isn't our purpose this morning. These people in Nehemiah's day knew how important covenants are to God. Over the past week, as Ezra read the scriptures to them, they would have heard that God made a covenant with Noah, God made a covenant with Abraham, God made a covenant with the nation of Israel, and God made a covenant with King David. And if they were at all familiar with the writing of the prophet Jeremiah, the greatest covenant, the new covenant instituted by Messiah, was yet to come as the perfect fulfillment of all these other covenants. So in verses 9 through 13, the Levites and their brothers signed this covenant. And in verses 14 through 27, the civic leaders signed the covenant. And... Uh, let's look very briefly at the terms of the covenant. All covenants have terms. Obligations to which each party agrees before entering the covenant. Often these terms cost each party something, but also there is mutual benefit for agreeing to the terms. So how did the people go about making this covenant? Well, they, the people agreed to accept a curse from God if they did not obey his law. This was not a curse in the popular sense of the word curse, like a solemn utterance intended to invoke a supernatural power to inflict harm on someone. It was more like a removal of blessing and protection. It could certainly, and almost always did, include disciplinary action, but always for the purpose of restoration. These people made the covenant publicly. A public covenant meant accountability. A private covenant made between two parties leaves only personal accountability, which can be fickle. When a covenant is made in front of a large assembly, though, like, say, a marriage, we cannot be faithless without others being aware of our hypocrisy. And this covenant that they wrote up is focused around three main themes. If you pay close attention, You'll notice that these three themes are the three failures of the Jews throughout the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. So the first focus is around marriage relationships in verse 30. When Ezra first arrived in Jerusalem many years before, unfaithfulness to the commands of God around marriages was the first problem he was forced to confront. The covenant of the Jews preserved the important principle that a follower of God should only marry another similarly committed follower of God. And this is every bit as true today for Christians. When we understand marriage as a covenant, we see that there is a bond between a husband and wife that is stronger than society's expectations, stronger than romantic love, and stronger than the difficulties we will face. When a couple is merely dating, or worse, living together, this unseen bond is non-existent in the relationship. And this absence changes everything. It deprives any children they may have of an intangible but unmistakable security and anchor on which they can build the rest of their lives. In a disagreement, one person cannot just leave They are faced with the necessary and edifying challenge of contending with their partner until there is some semblance of unity. To put it as succinctly as I can, I would say that a marriage covenant forces each one of us to confront the fact that we are not the most important person even in our own life. A fact exponentially obvious when we are blessed with children, either naturally or adopted. God knew this is a necessary truth to grasp before a person can live a life of fulfillment and and purpose. We cannot be the most important person in our lives. Just a brief word for the unmarried. The Apostle Paul, also an unmarried man, recognized that Jesus Christ was the most important person in his life. God granted Paul the gift of being able to remain unmarried and yet live a life of complete fulfillment. There are blessings and trials that come with entering a marriage covenant. There are blessings and trials that come by remaining single. Neither is a higher standard than the other. They are just different. The second area focus of this covenant was business relationships and we can see that in Nehemiah chapter 10 verse 31 the focus for the Jews in this covenant obligation was the Sabbath there were Sabbath days Saturdays and Sabbath years every seventh year under the Old Testament law God said that no one could buy or sell anything on the Sabbath day furthermore all farmland was to be left fallow each seventh year. These citizens of Jerusalem had been breaking this law and it was time to stop. Finally, in verses 32 through 39 of this covenant, religious relationships are focused on. Simply speaking, all of the religious relationships mentioned in this covenant centered around temple worship. The Jews' temple life was no longer to be neglected. Levites and priests were to be sustained, storerooms were to be full, and offerings were to be brought regularly. And it all began with giving unto the Lord. In this regard, I know I am preaching to the choir, so to speak. Interestingly, Paul only mentions giving, it seems to me, in letters to generous churches. And so I too have nothing to teach you guys in this area. This group of people that uh, that we meet together regularly, uh, sometimes in odd ways like this morning, is the most generous group of people I know. I had just a quick story. I had one lady um, send me a text. I dropped off a couple eggs at the church for you. And I was like, oh, I wonder if she found a container for a couple eggs. Well, a couple eggs meant six dozen. Yes, we ate eggs for quite a while, but we have generous people. I have never met a group of people that are more willing to give. You cannot know how blessed and humbled my wife and family and I are, as well as other gospel workers that our church supports all over the world due to your generosity. But just as a reminder for anyone that has forgotten why they give, Simply said, the Bible teaches that we need to be givers. Not so much for the sake of those we give to, although that's important, but because giving sets our heart right about material things. If you are losing sleep over the economic hardships that are surely coming our way due to inept political leadership, try giving to someone in real need. Just to be perfectly clear, I'm not asking for your money. I am not some TV evangelist, and I use the word evangelist very loosely, telling you that you will be blessed if you give to me or this church. I cannot make this any more clear. If you don't want to give, this church doesn't want your money. Keep it. How you choose to give to the Lord is between you and him. But be aware, if you hold on to money so tightly that you will not give to God either here or to some other work of the Lord, then you have learned plainly where your heart is when it comes to money. The New Testament speaks with great clarity on the privilege of giving. Giving should be planned, proportional, and private. 1 Corinthians 16 verses 1 through 4. Furthermore, it must be generous, given freely, and glad. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, the whole chapter. Pastor Steve, if you're listening, did you like my alliteration there? Planned, proportional, private, generous, given freely, and glad. I hope you did. I hope you appreciated it. It was for you. If you are reluctant to be a giver, simply talk to someone that you know who is. Ask them if it has been a blessing or a hardship in their life to give. And remember this, you cannot outgive God. The third and final point that I'd like to go over today, um, I've labeled in my notes, let's talk about covenants. We don't talk a lot about covenants today. Most of us don't understand them well, but we should. The theme of the covenant runs throughout the Bible because covenants act as a kind of skeleton upon which the entire redemptive story is built. We call the two major sections of the Bible the Old Testament and the New Testament but they could just as rightfully rightfully be called the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. From Genesis on God institutes one formal relationship after another with various people and people groups to build his redemption story in the world. These divine human covenant relationship push forward that narrative until it reaches its perfect fulfillment in Jesus of Nazareth. That's why I want to spend the rest of today's message exploring the concept of biblical covenants. But before we do, let's back up and consider what a covenant is and how the covenantal story began. So first of all, what is a covenant? A covenant is an agreement or promise, usually under seal, between two or more parties, especially for the performance of some action in reaching a common goal. They're often accompanied by oaths, signs, and ceremonies, the most familiar of which for us today is marriage. Covenants contain defined obligations and commitments. Unlike, say, a formal contract, though, which is usually financial in nature, a covenant is deeper and is personal and relational in nature. In a marriage, for example, a husband and wife choose to enter into a formal relationship, binding themselves to one another in lifelong faithfulness and devotion to God. There is a gathering of witnesses, a solemn ceremony, there are solemn oaths, and the covenant is sealed with signatures and a ring. They each agree to certain responsibilities with which come certain benefits. They then work as partners to reach a common goal like establishing a home or raising godly children together. That's a covenant. This type of relationship is found throughout the Bible. There were personal covenants between two individuals, like David and Jonathan in 1 Samuel 23. There were political covenants between two kings or nations, like King Solomon and King Hiram in 1 Kings 5. And there were legal covenants within a nation, like the laws about freeing Hebrew slaves, and so on. Covenants were part and parcel of what it meant to live in the ancient Near East. It makes sense then that God would reach out to mankind to reveal Himself and bring about reconciliation through a structure they and we already understood. Covenants are so simple, even a child can understand them, but so powerful that nations have gone to war when covenants are breached the first covenant god created man and woman in his image placed them in paradise and established a relationship with them to partner with him to spread life and goodness throughout the world the hebrew word for covenant berit isn't explicitly used in Genesis 1-3, to but the details of the relationship between God and man are covenantal. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, were to live as priest kings on God's behalf, filling and ruling over the world and representing His righteousness everywhere. They would enjoy, therefore, the blessings of eternal life and union with God, and their only obligation was to refrain from eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. To fail to live up to their end of the Covenant would result in death. Simple, right? Yeah, wrong. Unfortunately, they didn't live up to their end of the Covenant. Adam and Eve chose to disbelieve God and trust their own emotional instincts about right and wrong. They sinned against God shattering the divine-human relationship and plunging humanity into sin and death. This monumental event is called the Fall, and it accounts for all the brokenness and corruption we experience in the world today. And we'd be stuck in the wreckage of Genesis 3, were it not for divine intervention through the covenants. It is the purpose of the rest of the whole Bible to describe God's great plan of the ages to restore this broken relationship, this broken partnership with mankind. So let's very briefly look at five key covenants in the Old Testament. Well, mentioned in the Old Testament. There's no consensus on the number of divine covenants. I thought I would look up to see if there was a um, a general consensus among all sorts of uh, Bible interpreters, and quite frankly, the numbers were between one and twelve. So um, um, I'm not going to not going to uh, come down real harsh on how many covenants um, that there are in the Old Testament. There are, however, five explicit covenants that form the backbone of the Bible. Those God made with Noah, Abraham, Israel, David and the new covenant inaugurated by Jesus. You'll want to know these as they keep the narrative moving along until we get to the climax of the story, Jesus. God's covenant with Noah. In Genesis nine, early in the Bible, God destroyed all mankind in a great flood, but spared Noah and his family on an ark. Once Noah exited the ark after this massive judgment, God made a covenant with Noah He promised Noah that he would never destroy the world with a flood again. Instead, the earth would be a reliable cycle of seasons so people could partner with God in restoring life and abundance in the world. A unique feature of this covenant is that God makes these promises to Noah without any requirements in return. God knows that man will continue to sin, but God would be faithful season after season, year after year, century after century. And God sealed this covenant promise by placing his war bow in the sky, a rainbow, to be a constant reminder to all men of all generations of God's promise. Later, God made a covenant with Abraham. At least one. Many generations later, God chose Abraham. He promised to bless him with a large family, including eventually a Messiah, a deliverer, and gave him rich land in which to flourish. In return, God asked Abraham to trust him and to raise up his family to do what is right and just. God told Abraham the purpose of this covenant. God would bless all the families on earth through this one family. In this covenant, God asks Abraham to seal the covenant in blood, the blood of circumcision. Then God made a covenant with Israel. Over about five centuries, Abraham's family grew into a large community, the tribe of Israel. They became enslaved in Egypt, but God delivered them back into Abraham's promised land through his servant Moses. And it is through Moses that God makes a covenant with Israel. In this covenant, God asked the Israelites to obey a set of laws based in the Ten Commandments. And if they did this faithfully, God promised to bless them and to make them into a nation that would represent God to all humanity so that those nations too could know that the God of Israel, the Lord, is God. This covenant was sealed again in the blood of an innocent animal which Moses sprinkled on the people. Then he made a covenant with David. This is the final covenant of the Old Testament scriptures. At this point in history, the tribe of Israel had become a large nation, led by a man named David, whom God appointed as king over his people. In God's covenant with David, he asked David and his descendants to faithfully lead the people of Israel in obeying the law of Moses and doing what is right and just. In return, God promised that one day, one of David's descendants would come as the seed, capital S, of the woman from Genesis 3.15, the Messiah and the King of Israel forever. He would extend God's kingdom of peace and blessing over all mankind. This covenant was sealed with the birth birth of a son, David's successor, Solomon, whose name means peace, who would build a great temple in Jerusalem dedicated to the worship of the Lord God. But Israel broke their covenant with God, abandoned his promises, was carried into exile, and eventually ended up back in the promised land, but under Persian dominion. And the Old Testament ends. That's it. No Messiah. Israel is under Persian control with no king of their own. This is plainly a story that cries out for a conclusion. And so let's talk about that conclusion. The New Covenant. In the Old Testament book of Jeremiah, well after the Davidic Covenant, the prophet makes note of a future eternal covenant God is going to make with his people. So let's turn to Jeremiah 31 and read verses 31 through 34. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more." This was the covenant the Jews longed for, and it would be fulfilled when Messiah came in its beginnings. Then something remarkable happened. On the night of his betrayal, Jesus said these words as he celebrated Passover, with his disciples this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you the new testament presents jesus as the offspring of noah representing all mankind jew and gentile it presents jesus as the seed of abraham who trusted his heavenly father even to the point of death and so became the blessing to all nations. He is the obedient Israelite who kept, fulfilled, and perfected the law of God. He is the royal son of David who inaugurated God's kingdom in his life, death, and resurrection and now sits at God's right hand reigning as shepherd, priest, king over the earth and will continue to reign forever and ever over the new creation when it comes. Think about it. Jesus perfectly succeeded at every point humanity failed. This makes him the guarantor and mediator of the new and better covenant, according to the writer of Hebrews. Now, people from every nation, tribe, and tongue who are joined to Jesus in faith are part of God's covenant family and experience the rich blessings of the beginnings of the new covenant. In this new covenant, we get total forgiveness of sin and cleansing from shame. We get new hearts of flesh to replace our hearts of stone, and we get the indwelling spirit enabling us to love God, obey His laws, and to walk in His ways. We can actually do justice and righteousness, not out of our own strength, but out of Christ's, and so be a light to all the nations. We can walk in freedom and light rather than sin and darkness. We have bold access to God to stand in the realm of grace. We trust that a renewed world is coming where peace and righteousness Will reign forever under the rule of King Jesus. And it's all possible because of Jesus, the perfect covenant keeper. Now, there's so much more that I could say regarding this new covenant and how we are seeing the beginnings of it and what it will look like as time goes on. But I think time refrains us from going into all of that. I wanted to give you an idea. Of what a covenant is and how Jesus is the perfect covenant keeper that fulfills them all so let's pray father in heaven we are so grateful for Jesus when we are reading through our Old Testaments and we see again and again how you reach out in mercy and grace to people particularly your people the Israelites and how they fail over and over again to keep their end of the covenant. And yet, you are faithful. You bring upon them discipline. You desire to drive them back into your arms, to arms of safety, where they have all of the richest blessings that this earth could provide. In those times. We are so grateful that Jesus is that second Adam, who didn't fail where Adam failed, who didn't fail where Noah and his descendants failed, who didn't fail where Abraham failed, and who didn't fail where the Israelites failed and didn't fail where David failed, but in absolute perfection and righteousness kept all of your law and perfected it. And when we look at ourselves, we realize that we are just another group of people that are destined to fail without the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we place ourselves into him so that we too can be blessed in this wonderful relationship that you have restored to us through Jesus Christ and his shed blood. I pray that you would walk with us through the coming weeks as we are dealing with difficult situations. I pray that as a God of justice you would look on any injustice that is happening in our societies and that you would intervene, that you would bring about justice in our world again. But mostly we pray that we would be a people, dedicated to the truth of God's word and Jesus Christ and walking with him in humble obedience day by day. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.